If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of September 4, 2022. The podcast that answers the phone a nothing. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's pathologize the news of the bogus. Do you remember years ago when we covered the Liverpool Care Pathway, the time when the NHS starved elderly patients to death to free up bed space? Well, it's happening again, this time in Canada. There are good reasons for euthanasia. If someone has nothing left to look forward to but a short life of misery, there's no hope for recovery, and with a sound mind and consultation with their family, decide it's just time to end the pain, it's psychotic to not let them have that option. What does it say that we let animals have more humane outcomes than humans? But when government gets involved, as always, incentives get perverted. Canada's euthanasia laws allow basically anyone with a minor disability to be euthanized. For one horrific example reported in the AP, 61-year-old Alan Nichols was euthanized because he suffered from hearing loss. He was otherwise healthy, and he was killed despite the protests of both his family and a nurse practitioner. Nichols's brother said he was pressured and railroaded into it without being given a chance to understand the alternatives he had. His wife said she was terrified about this happening to someone else. And to make matters worse, the health authorities just swept it under the rug, with no way to hold the doctors and hospitals accountable for unnecessary euthanasia. That was also the case with 41-year-old Sean Taggart, who couldn't get the 24-hour care he needed or get the medical equipment his illness required. A 25-year-old woman, Candace Lewis, who suffers from spina bifida and cerebral palsy, was admitted to an emergency room where doctors told her mother she was a candidate for euthanasia and called her selfish for not pursuing it. Roger Foley of London, Ontario, was so bothered by the amount of time staff mentioned euthanasia to him, he began recording the conversations. They're even going to be pushing it on the mentally ill starting next year, which is inexcusable. Mentally ill people should be discouraged from suicide, and every psychiatrist and psychologist worth his salt will confirm it. According to three UN human rights experts, Canada's euthanasia laws discriminate against the disabled and are inconsistent with human rights. For crying out loud, even Jack Kevorkian would make sure you'd exhausted every other available option. But this is what we see with government health care. Costs loom, prices are capped, and the result is healthcare shortages that have to be dealt with somehow. And that led to pro-euthanasia groups like Dying with Dignity to push them on children as young as 12. Last year alone, over 10,000 Canadians died by medically assisted suicide. If it were listed as a cause of death, it would be the seventh leading cause of death in the country. And that was a 32.4% increase over 2020. Overall, it represented 3.3% of all deaths. If America were euthanizing people at the rate Canada does, that would be over 120,000 killed every year. Make no mistake, very few of these are terminally ill. Most would still be alive were it not for the euthanasia. But only 15% of Canadians have access to palliative care, meaning that a lot of them are given the option of euthanasia or unnecessary suffering. 
In fact, some people were even euthanized out of fear of loneliness caused by COVID lockdowns. In one case, a woman was euthanized because they wouldn't let her family visit her. Ironically, they were allowed to attend her death. But it's one more thing that, as usual, will be glossed over as universal healthcare gets pushed on the rest of us. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you create at Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. So now more and more information is coming out about the collusion of big tech and the U.S. government in a coordinated campaign of censorship. The point that the lefties smugly sneered at us was that they were private companies and can do what they want. We just wanted to know why that didn't apply to people baking cakes. But that does not apply when government is threatening, cajoling, coordinating, or otherwise influencing the decisions. When that happens, according to several Supreme Court precedents, including Norwood v. Harrison, those private companies become state actors and the Constitution kicks in. And over time, most notably but not limited to the coordinated activity that took down Parler in something like a few hours, it became clear that there was a lot more going on. Same with the systematic censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story, something that, according to several different polls, would have cost Joe Biden the election if people had been told the truth about it. And now, the lawsuit Missouri v. Biden, which also includes Louisiana as well as four private plaintiffs as represented by the new Civil Liberties Alliance, is uncovering all sorts of information in the discovery phase. They're suing the Biden administration for free speech violations, colluding with platforms like Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook to remove any content that questions or challenges the government's COVID policies. In their discovery, they found that federal officers across at least 11 agencies, including the White House, secretly communicated with social media platforms to censor and suppress private speech they didn't like. And they give examples. They said, quote, First, the breadth and extent of the federal defendant's censorship activities is massive. In their initial response to interrogatories, defendants initially identified 45 federal officials at DHS, CISA, the CDC, NIAID, and the Office of the Surgeon General, all within only two federal agencies, DHS and HHS, who communicate with social media platforms about misinformation and censorship. The third-party social media platforms, moreover, have revealed that more federal agencies are involved. 
Meta, for example, has disclosed that at least 32 federal officials, including senior officials at the FDA, the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, and the White House, have communicated with Meta about content moderation on its platforms, many of whom were not disclosed in response to plaintiffs' interrogatories to defendants. YouTube disclosed 11 federal officials engaged in such communications, including officials at the Census Bureau and the White House, many of whom were also not disclosed by defendants. Twitter disclosed nine federal officials, including senior officials at the State Department, who were not previously disclosed by defendants. So, yeah, the Biden administration hasn't been turning over the required discovery. And that's especially true about the involvement of high-level officials such as Anthony Fauci. Quote, The limited communications produced so far from these high-level officials are particularly relevant and probative because they provide revealing glimpses into the intensive oversight and pressure to censor that senior federal officials placed on social media platforms. For example, after President Biden publicly stated about Facebook on July 16, 2021, that they're killing people, a very senior executive at Meta, Facebook and Instagram, reached out to Surgeon General Murphy to engage in damage control and appease the president's wrath. Soon thereafter, the same Meta executive sent a text message to Surgeon General Murphy, noting that it's not great to be accused of killing people, and expressing that he was keen to find a way to de-escalate and work together collaboratively. That is exactly what the Supreme Court says makes you a state actor. So it's not just collusion and collaboration, it's outright pressure and threats. Quote, Such communications from the White House impose maximal pressure on social media companies, and they clearly get results when it comes to censorship. And federal officials are fully aware that such pressure is necessary to induce social media platforms to increase censorship. SISA Director Jan Easterly, for example, texted with another SISA official about trying to get us in a place where Fed can work with platforms to better understand the misdis trends so relevant agencies can try to pre-bunk, debunk as useful, and complained about the government's need to overcome the social media platform's hesitation to working with the government. Platforms have got to get more comfortable with government. It's really interesting how hesitant they remain. But government bullying can generally get past all that hesitance, quote, Discovery received so far indicates that a veritable army of federal bureaucrats are involved in censorship activities across the federal enterprise, and defendants have not yet received interrogatory responses reflecting defendants' knowledge of federal officials at other agencies who communicate with social media platforms about censorship, but apparently there are many. And yes, they brought the receipts to prove it so they're pressing for full disclosure. One of the plaintiffs, Dr. Aaron Cariotti, wrote on Substack, I suspected all this was happening, but didn't imagine the sheer scope, the breadth, depth, and coordination suggested by the evidence that our legal team has uncovered so far during the discovery phase of the legal proceedings. To see this evidence on the page, which we know is just the tip of the iceberg, is simply shocking, and I'm not an easy person to shock. Likewise, the deep involvement of many of our national security agencies is revealing and disturbing. This evidence suggests we are uncovering the most serious, coordinated, and large-scale violation of First Amendment free speech rights by the federal government's executive branch in U.S. history, period, full stop. Even wartime propaganda efforts never reach this level of censorship, 
nor did the government in days past have the power of today's social media at its disposal. So, best of luck to them. We'll have to see what else they uncover. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. If only those companies had the courage of Cloudflare. They're doing everything they can to avoid being forced into the role as Internet police or some sort of piracy patrol. We've covered before how in 2017, CEO Matthew Prince decided to terminate the Daily Stormer and then came to regret it. But then they kicked off 8chan, the site where the El Paso shooter published his manifesto. And the thing is, once you can write off as a mistake, twice, and people start to wonder, in particular, the big content cartel started to wonder why they didn't do the same with pirate sites. So a wave of termination requests followed, and Cloudflare had to reposition themselves as a conduit where data flowed freely. And if there are any problems, they should be taken care of with the website hosting, not with Cloudflare, any more than it should with the air between the screen and the reader's eyes. Quote, Our guiding principle is that organizations closest to content are best at determining when the content is abusive. It also recognizes that overbroad takedowns can have significant unintended impact on access to content online. But now they're facing another cancel discussion, this time about Kiwi Farms. That made them publish a blog post clarifying their stance on abusive, offensive, and illegal content. They've made a distinction between the services they offer. When it's the hosting platform, there is a voluntary termination policy, but there is no such policy for the CDN, where they're just operating as core internet infrastructure designed to increase connectivity and protect people from DDoS and other such attacks. Quote, Giving everyone the ability to sign up for our services online also reflects our view that cyber attacks not only should not be used for silencing vulnerable groups, but are not the appropriate mechanism for addressing problematic content online. We believe cyber attacks in any form should be relegated to the dustbin of history. Some argue that we should terminate these services to content we find reprehensible so that others can launch attacks to knock it offline. That is the equivalent argument in the physical world that the fire department shouldn't respond to fires in the homes of people who do not possess sufficient moral character. Both in the physical world and online, that is a dangerous precedent and one that is, over the long term, most likely to disproportionately harm vulnerable and marginalized communities. Just as the telephone company doesn't terminate your line if you say awful, racist, bigoted things, we have concluded in consultation with politicians, policymakers, and experts 
that turning off security services because we think what you publish is despicable is the wrong policy. To be clear, just because we did it in a limited set of cases before doesn't mean we were right when we did, or that we will ever do it again. They found out firsthand what we've been saying for years. Slippery Slope is not a fallacy. The Daily Stormer and 8chan were the camel's nose in the tent, and afterwards, they had to work hard to avoid the rest of the camel. Cloudflare responds to court orders to block pirate sites, but they have vowed to fight it tooth and nail when it's core infrastructure that's at stake. So they're fighting a recent order in Italy that requires the company to block pirate site lookups on its DNS servers. Quote, Unfortunately, these cases are becoming more common, where largely copyright holders are attempting to get a ruling in one jurisdiction and have it apply worldwide to terminate core internet technology services and effectively wipe content offline. And that's a dangerous power to have, one that, back after the Daily Stormer incident, Prince said no one should be allowed to have. It would allow totalitarian regimes to censor any content they deem repugnant or even just in opposition. They can't go back in time and change what they did with Daily Stormer and 8chan, but they can hold the line from here on out and prevent any more bad precedents from taking hold. Quote, Holding this line, we believe, is fundamental for the healthy operation of the global Internet. But each showing of discretion across our security or core Internet technology services weakens our argument in these important cases. There remain many injustices in the world, and unfortunately, much content online that we find reprehensible. We can solve some of these injustices, but we cannot solve them all. But in the process of working to improve the security and functioning of the Internet, we need to make sure we don't cause it long-term harm. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttletwins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain, or regulations passed in the name of safety, and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to truncate this week's Biggest Bogon Emitter. And this week it goes to the SEC, whose antics in the crypto space are starting to draw the attention of news sites such as, in this case, Forbes. Quick civics lecture, we have separation of powers, legislative, executive, and judicial. The SEC is part of the executive branch. They can't do anything they haven't been given the authority to do by the legislative branch, which is Congress. And even then, they can't do anything prohibited by the Constitution. To help make sure they stay within those bounds, in 1946, Congress passed the Administrative Procedure Act, requiring agencies to publish notice of rulemaking in the Federal Register and provide an opportunity for public comment. 
When it comes to cryptocurrencies, the SEC seems to have skipped that part. While crypto can, of course, be used fraudulently like everything else, that's no reason to single them out. And no matter how they bleed about privacy, ease of use, availability, anonymization, and a lack of third-party intermediaries, and how they can help scam artists, the fact is, if anything, they're an even greater help to honest people. After all, those are great ways to protect honest people from scam artists, hackers, and thieves. And while it is apparently true that at least $1 billion was lost to crypto fraud in 2021, far more than that, $15 billion was lost when the SEC brought their bogus lawsuit against Ripple. And they're painting all cryptos with a broad brush, basically claiming that all cryptocurrencies, tokens, exchanges, lending, staking, finance, NFTs, and stablecoins are guilty until proven innocent ignoring the basics of justice and the Howey test, and instead, like we've covered with both the Ripple and Library cases, engaging in regulation by enforcement, they create uncertainty in the market and heap prohibitive legal expenses on small crypto-based firms. If they can devote 50 agents to the crypto industry, why can't they devote some to publishing notice and providing for public comment like they're required by law to do? So now, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler has published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal titled The SEC Treats Crypto Like the Rest of the Capital Markets. Security laws that protect investors continue to apply even when new technologies come along. With the title alone, he shoveled enough crap to start a fertilizer company. And he even had the audacity to claim, quote, The rules have been around for decades. The platforms aren't following them. Well, maybe if you let them know what they are. And how can the rules for crypto have been around for decades when it's only existed since 2009? He actually said, quote, I encourage platforms offering crypto lending to come in and talk to SEC staff. Yeah, well, Dash tried that. What did they get? Nothing. Library tried that. What did they get? A lawsuit! And if these rules of yours exist... Why not just publish them on your website? He quoted himself saying, Make no mistake, if a lending platform is offering securities, it falls into SEC jurisdiction. Yeah, well, as I've covered here and on my YouTube channel, most crypto assets are not securities according to the Howey test. But that's where he got the decades part. He's using the rules for securities that have existed while ignoring the rule that says that cryptocurrencies like Ripple and Library don't count as securities. In fact, he made it clear he considers every crypto to be a security, when it definitely isn't with cryptos like Bitcoin, Litecoin, Doge, and Dash. And, of course, that goes against what previous SEC heads have said, like William Hinman, who said back in 2018, quote, When I look at Bitcoin today... I do not see a central third party whose efforts are a key determining factor in the enterprise. The network on which Bitcoin functions is operational and appears to have been decentralized for some time, perhaps from inception. Applying the disclosure regime of the federal securities laws to the offer and resale of Bitcoin would seem to add little value. He made it clear that only certain tokens could be considered securities, which aren't the way basic cryptos such as Bitcoin and Ethereum work. And how do I know he said that? Because his speech is still on the SEC's website. 
But now, the SEC seems to have decided otherwise, completely internally and without any public inquiry or rulemaking, and without the authority having been given to them by Congress. And that's why Ripple wants the SEC to turn over, as part of discovery, the internal documents regarding the 2018 speech. Magistrate Judge Sarah Netburn has repeatedly ordered the SEC to comply, but they keep refusing, even for so much as in-camera review. Back in July, she ruled, The SEC has distanced itself from the speech to avoid discovery and sought to preclude Hinman's deposition on the grounds that whatever he said in the speech, it had nothing to do with the SEC's position. The hypocrisy in arguing to the court, on the one hand, that the speech is not relevant to the market's understanding of how or whether the SEC will regulate cryptocurrency, and on the other hand, that Hinman sought and obtained legal advice from SEC counsel in drafting his speech, suggests that the SEC is adopting its litigation positions to further its desired goal and not out of a faithful allegiance to the law. And as we covered before in the library case, Gensler said in a speech, quote, Make no mistake, it doesn't matter whether it's a stock token, a stable value token backed by securities, or any other virtual product that provides synthetic exposure to underlying securities. These products are subject to the securities laws and must work within our securities regime. No, Gensler, only if they pass the Howey test. And Library doesn't, not by any rational reading of the test. But Gensler lied about that too, claiming that Howey is a three-part test when it's really a four-part test. And Gensler can't even claim ignorance because he taught a course on cryptocurrency at MIT. Blockchain and money was taught by him back in fall of 2018 when he was an advisor with MIT's Digital Currency Initiative. The course is still available through MIT's OpenCourseWare. So he knows perfectly well what he's doing. He can't point you to any of the rules, and if they're there and so easy to follow, then why are there currently over 200 SEC lawsuits regarding cryptocurrencies? And in other cases, such as Dash, why have they refused to so much as send them a no-action letter? With the exception of a few token ICOs, cryptocurrency is clearly not a security and clearly not under the SEC's jurisdiction. This is nothing more than a power grab, and perhaps even part of a larger push by a federal government we know is completely hostile to cryptocurrency and the freedom and security it offers people. So all of that makes the SEC this week's biggest bogan emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. Go to Firmoo, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmoo dot Bogosity dot TV.
And now let's singularize this week's Idiot Extraordinary. And this week it goes to the state of California for once again screwing up government services, blaming other people, and making the people suffer for it. But each time it just gets more and more ridiculous. In this case, we have the state planning to ban the sale of all gasoline-powered automobiles by 2035. When the grid can't even handle things now, and the grid is under so much strain, California is asking residents not to charge their electric cars. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad if they wouldn't keep needlessly shutting down nuclear reactors. They only have two left at the Diablo Canyon power plant, which provide 9% of the state's electricity, completely carbon-free. The NRC says it's among the top facilities of its kind in the country. They're Generation 2 PWRs that should be able to last until 2065. Instead, they'll be retired in 2024 and 2025. In addition, years ago they put a stop to new coal plants and gets just 0.2% of its current power from coal. They're also struggling with an aging grid and dated transmission lines. All of this means they're currently having to import 50% of their power from out of state. As California experiences a record heat wave, more and more people are using power. They asked residents to set their thermostats no lower than 78 degrees, avoid using large appliances, and limiting usage between 4 p.m. and 9 p.m. In what is by far the wealthiest state, with 11.6% of the country's GDP. If it were its own country, it would have the 7th highest GDP in the world. And it's hardly the only one experiencing a heat wave. So their decision to ban gas-powered cars is just idiotic, especially since they're doing it to meet their clean air standards, which would also be a lot easier if they had more nuclear power. California has the largest electric vehicle market, with over 1.1 million electric cars registered, 43% of the electric vehicles in the country. But there are just 80,000 charging stations, when they'll need 1.2 million by 2030 just by current growth levels, let alone if they ban gas cars completely by 2035. They've screwed up the electric grid again. They've shut down nuclear reactors. They've all but crippled the natural gas pipeline system, which is actually supplying most of their power and their solar and wind facilities are providing far less than their promised output. And now they're telling people not to do the very thing they were wanting them to do, drive electric cars. There's no possible way that anyone but California could be this week's... Idiot Well, that wraps up this... I'd say bon voyage, but there's no point. You'll be dead in three months. Edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar, and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Pendulette. If stupid hippies hadn't killed nuclear power, we'd have nuclear power plants, safer and cheaper than coal-fired plants, all over, and electric cars really would be zero emissions. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial and Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity.
We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now.